The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Joining us today is Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. He's a longtime Forbes music editor who spent time with everyone from Justin Bieber to Kanye West and is now writing a book about how we can see our future by looking at the music industry. And he's doing it entirely via email, something we're going to talk about. It's called We Are All Musicians Now, which is a title I just absolutely love. Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's great having you, man. So uh, we've been friends for a long time, and you you've uh, you brought me into Forbes, where I was a contributor for a couple of years, and um, you know you've written a number of books about Jay Z and uh, you know the music business, and you did this amazing thing, which you know I was like, oh, where's that going to go next? And you just went independent uh, and decided to write, you know, not only write for Substack, which is an email newsletter platform many of our listeners are familiar with, but you know, write a full book serialized on the email platform. And I think that's a fascinating move. And maybe you've learned some lessons from the people that you cover in the media industry lessons about owning your own intellectual property and being in control of the work that you create. And I think that that's fascinating and a bold move. I haven't seen many of uh, its kind. Uh, I don't, I haven't seen a book sent out via email newsletter before. So Anyway, I'm so excited to have you on and, and to talk about not only the work that you're doing in the music industry, but also your personal uh, moves and what was the inspiration behind them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I think to sum it up, really, I've spent my whole career um, chronicling the likes of Jay-Z and Diddy and Dr. Dre. And, you know, these are all figures who got where they are today, uh, which is to say, you know, billionaire status or, or near billionaire status by owning their work, owning their intellectual property. And, you know, in, in many cases, having to fight to get it back. Um, but, you know, I think particularly when you look at hip hop, which is, you know, something very near and dear to my heart and what, you know, kind of got me off the ground at Forbes uh, was writing these lists of the top earning rappers or the wealthiest hip hop acts. Um, you know, I, I think that in the case of a lot of these guys, it was, uh, you know, they didn't have a choice. Um, they, you know, were in situations in the late eighties, early nineties, where if they wanted to, to put out an album, uh, record labels thought hip hop was too dangerous, you know? Um, and so the only option was to start their own record labels and own their own masters and so forth. Uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, talking about Jay-Z, uh, and Diddy wanted to have their own, you know, clothes, but they didn't even think about having their own clothing lines until, you know, they went to an existing clothing company and, and pitched an endorsement and were laughed out of the room, basically. And so then they went and started their own clothing lines. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, these guys have had to overcome a lot of obstacles, obviously, that, that I haven't had to overcome as, you know, a white dude. Uh, who, who grew up in, in, you know, in Manhattan and um, and so forth. But um, that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons for everybody that, 
you know, that, that could be taken away. And, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of choices, um, you know, career wise coming up and to not have to overcome those obstacles. But after studying these guys for my entire career, um, the idea of finding a way to own my own work, uh, finding a way to, you know, control the distribution and to, to above all have, you know, maximal creative control, um, was just so enticing that I, that I couldn't pass it up. And that's why I ultimately went to Substack. Right. It, it is interesting that with the Substack, uh, stuff that there is this, uh, a quite a similar parallel where you have people who've some, you know, in some ways been forced to go independent because the mainstream doesn't really want to publish their views. And then other people who see that this is actually a good business opportunity. I think you and I probably fall into that latter category, but it does end up with the people that are doing the work, you know, owning the work that they're doing versus like when you work for a publication, I know like, um, you know, in the places that I've worked before, like I wrote the stories, but never owned them. It was always, you know, the publication stories, which, you know, it seemed fair. They were paying me to do it. Um, but on the other hand, um, with a little more risk, I think something like a Substack, where you're writing independent, you own your work and you're, you're going to get paid by readers or maybe get paid by Substack in some way, or maybe get paid through advertising. Uh, it's, it's a much better situation. So, um, I think this is a good, I, I do want to get into that in the second half, but I do think this is like a good segue to get into the premise of this book that you're writing called we are all musicians now. And it does seem that like the stuff that comes for the rest of the world does come for the music industry first. And you and I have talked about this a bit. Um, you say that, you know, the move to streaming content or the move to the internet largely, you know, happened first with the music industry and then, and then, you know, with the rest of media, like television and, and movies, and also that, uh, you know, limited release records or single release records are quite like what we're seeing with NFTs right now. So I'm curious if you could just outline your thesis for the book and give some of the parallels that we've seen the music industry lead the charge and what might be coming for the rest of us. Yeah, you know, I think you I think you hit on it um, in the in the preamble there. You know, that that's pretty much the thesis, right? If we're all musicians now, right, if, if everything kind of flows through music, it hits music first, it's almost like you can tell the future by watching what happens to musicians. So Yeah, so what's been, what's hit music first? Yeah. Uh I would I would look at any number of trends. I mean, so for example, the shift from physical uh retail to digital, right? Who did that impact first? Tower records. Tower records. Uh, <laughs> you know, and even before bookstores, even before you know, any number, you know, even before everything was on Amazon, uh, you were seeing Tower Records go out of business. Uh, everything else was chugging along and nobody was sort of like, we have to rethink our entire retail model. You know, even though the writing was on the wall, it wasn't for maybe another decade until, you know, um, sort of like the, the, the real e-commerce thing uh, completely upended you know, the way we buy and sell things, you know, to the point that it is today. Right. Um, so if you've been paying attention to music, you know, you probably could have seen that. Um, then it was the, the shift from, you know, digital ownership to streaming. Right. Uh, uh-huh. so going from like buying a, a song through iTunes to like a subscription to Spotify where people used to buy maybe movies or something. And now you subscribe to Netflix. Is that another thing that the music industry predicted? Predicted? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the rise of Netflix 
or Netflix and chill. Uh, where, you know, the, that yeah. phrase has only come about in, in, for the past couple of years, but, you know, Spotify was, was hitting uh, almost a decade ago. So, you know, again, that's another place where, you know, even if you had seen the way things were going in music and you had just bought a bunch of Netflix stock, you know, you, you'd be doing uh, pretty well. Um, and then, even, and then I think, as you mentioned, um, single release albums, uh, you know, kind of were the prophecy, uh, if you will, you know, to, to kind of lay the groundwork for NFTs. So one of my favorite stories that I ever recorded at so Forbes. These NFTs, before we get into it, the NFTs yeah. are these uh, essentially JPEGs or an image that you can buy ownership of on the internet. So um, I guess there's this interest in them because they're scarce or because they're a good place to park your crypto winnings. Um, but you know, the, there's this nice part of it that it's one off, you know, and it's original. And so, uh, so maybe, yeah, this limited release records sort of gave us a, I mean, I don't know, is it a bit of a stretch, but, um, we can tell <laughs> the story and, and let me know, uh, how it connects. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you tell me if you think it's a stretch. I, I don't, I think the first NFT <laughs> ever, uh, it wasn't even called an NFT. It was this Wu-Tang album, um, that I, broke the news of for Forbes uh, back in 2014. And it was the strangest thing. I got an email from some incomprehensible jumble of letters uh, claiming, you know, to, to be the producer of this Wu-Tang album that had been produced in secret over six years in Morocco. And it was so secret that even the group members didn't have access to it. And they were going to sell one physical copy to, and, you know, for millions of dollars and and that would be it. And this person, whoever bought it, couldn't reproduce it. So it was going to be like, you know, uh, essentially a sculpture. Um, I ended up interviewing RZA, sort of the uh, front man of the Wu-Tang Clan. And he said, it's going to be like the scepter of an Egyptian king. Um, so, you know, it, the, the, the in-between of all of that was, was pretty fascinating. Basically, I, I thought they were kind of scamming me. I didn't think it was real. And so I, I, I made them have um, RZA DM me from his you know, verified Twitter account <laughs> in mm -hmm. order to prove it. And then, and then and he did. He talk. said that, yes, we did this yeah. limited, this, it was Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. That's, that's the album. Yeah, exactly. And um, have you listened you, to it? Yeah, I, I've listened to, to parts really? of it anyway. Um, okay. Forbes sent me out to Morocco to, to, uh, to no way. keep chasing the story. And, um, okay. It, it was just this bizarre scenario. They had the album, you know, they, they had this, handcrafted silver and nickel box produced by a <laughs> Moroccan art British Moroccan artisan named Yaya. And, you know, he took me to his workshop and we saw how the box was made. And then they had the album itself, you know, in a, like a private suite at this hotel where all the billionaires stay. It was, it was just super over the top. And eventually Martin Shkreli bought it, you know, the, the, uh, yeah, pharma, the pharma bro. bro. And, um, <laughs> pharma bro villain. Yeah, exactly. Who's, uh, playing some games to make people's prescription coverages go through the roof and is in jail or prison now. Yeah. And ended up forfeiting the album. Um, right. Who has the album now? So that's the latest mystery. Uh, the album what? was sold, was seized by the U S government and yeah. it was sold to an unknown buyer for, uh, at least $2 million. Zach, how does the U S government seize an album like that and just sell it with like, I didn't, I don't remember a public bidding process. Isn't this a little, corrupt Sorry, uh, yeah i mean now, it's but... it's bizarre and, and actually a lot of the yeah. people one you know one of the things that i wrote about on, on my Substack blog was that you know so 
I should clarify, there's the book, which comes out once a week, and that's for paid subscribers only. You know, So that's an installments, um, Dickens style. We're all musicians now. And the other one yeah. is the, you know, I call it the Zog blog. Your it's blog. once a week, intersection of music, media, and money. Um, and it's all on zogblog.co, and you can, you can subscribe for free to the blog, or you can go and, and be a paid subscriber to the book. But, um, but yeah, the, um, you know, one of the things I wrote about was, in fact, that the government, you know, might have gotten ripped off. I think it was a bit of a hot potato. Like you say, you know, what does the government know from selling one of a kind hip hop albums that are maybe actually better described as NFTs? Uh, and, and so I think they were just like, you know, let's get rid of it. Let's settle this guy's debts and, and move on. Um, you know, kind of like you might sell, you know, like some incarcerated drug dealers um you know luxury car uh it it might yeah it might not be the it might not be the best price but you know you're just getting it out of the government warehouse so um yeah you know i i think that um i think that they could have actually gotten 10 times that for for the album and that's what some of the crypto people i talked to oh yeah especially the way the the that money is right now it's money is crazy right now so yeah. People are spending money you. on dumb things like JPEGs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did, so what this is an actual said, album. Money is kind of weird right now. I think that was a uh, an Alex Kantrowitz quote. I really love that. Money is weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how, so how does this relate to an NFT? I guess NFTs are digital. I think that's what makes them unique. But like, haven't there been like limited sneaker releases for a long time? And all that stuff. So like creating some artificial scarcity or like, what's the, what's yeah, the, I think, I think that's, it's in the same vein. Right. Um, but you know, for the Wu-Tang album, what they were trying to do is to create scarcity for something that's theoretically infinitely reproducible. And that's what a NFT is, right? I mean, it's, a Oh yeah. Oh, great um, point. Okay. So no longer you know, a stretch in my opinion. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that they, I think that they achieved that, right? I mean, uh, you know, sure, there there are clips now floating around the internet, and, and Martin Shkreli did stream some of it on YouTube, and you know, you can dig up some stuff. But like, in order yeah. to have the whole thing, you know, it almost doesn't really matter. Like, if you have a YouTube clip of that album, you have a YouTube clip of of, of that album of Martin Shkreli streaming. It. But you know, it's kind of like if you have a when I when I was in in ninth grade, I, I had this business. Um, I bought a copy of Babe Ruth's original copy uh, contract on eBay for ten bucks or twenty bucks, maybe I think. And then and then I just copied it with a copy machine, and I sold it for ten bucks. Um, nice, you know, and thirty five, whatever it was, thirty three cents for shipping and envelopes, and and you know, I was making a nice uh, profit until somebody else caught on and they bought my copy and started selling it for you know five bucks, and then the margins got too low and I lost interest. But um, mm-hmm. you know. But we knew it was, it was, yeah, it was a copy of a copy. Um, but that original Babe Ruth contract, you know, that's hard to fake, right? I mean, it's on some parchment scroll. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe not yeah. a parchment scroll, but you can tell that it's an original and, and there's some sort of Boston Red Sox rolled out a parchment scroll and a quill to sign the multi-talented. <laughs> and it's Ruth. all been downhill from there. It's, yes, it has. Although Shohei Otani, maybe, maybe we're back in, but. Anyway, uh, all right. So, um, and so NFTs. So I, 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 I now buy that argument. And then I guess the last thing is that we touched on it already was um, people's move to own their own intellectual property. We're in a moment now where 
um, creativity is a core part of many more jobs than it had been in the past. And so maybe the music industry had also like gone through this where like, do you go through a talent agency or a record, record label and who owns the rights? And a lot of musicians found out the hard way that it's actually important to own your own stuff. And so maybe the rest of that's coming for the rest of us as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the first chapter of We Are All Musicians Now, which is now complete um, and up there on, on Substack. But, you know, I, I dealt with the sort of first half of, or, you know, let's say the middle part of the 20th century in the music business. And really back then the default was, you know, you're just lucky to get anything for music. And, you know, they're going to give you an advance, a few thousand bucks. Maybe it's just a bottle of wine and a car. Uh, and, you know, you're going you're gonna to get your music put out. Um, but they own all your rights. And that has evolved over the, the decades, you know, um, acts like Paul McCartney fighting to get their rights back. Um, you know, acts like Jay-Z insisting on keeping their rights and so forth. Uh, to the point where I think the default in the music business is now, you know, even if you're an up and coming act, it would probably be, it would be like a split ownership uh, of some kind. The default is no longer that the, the record company owns everything. And if you have a lot of leverage coming in, you know, um, if you're big on TikTok or if you, you know, if you've, if you've been indie and long enough and kind of bootstrapped it as a musician, you can insist on owning your masters and owning your publishing rights and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, you, you can keep it from, from the get go. Uh, you know, that's, that's a huge change. And, and I think it's kind of crazy when you look at other businesses, right? How many different, I mean, certainly anything where you're creating, um, you know, if you're, if you're inventing things or whatever, you know, the company owns everything. And even for journalists, um, yeah, you know, they're paying you a salary, probably not a great salary, uh, to, to write good stuff. In journalism, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they own they own the words that are printed outright, um, mm. and I think that's insane. I mean, how the is ideas. that not even a split? Like, you know, yeah. if you there are stories that I've written at Forbes that still, you know, that still generate. I mean, I, I, I haven't, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm sure you know tens of thousands of page views a year, maybe maybe more, um, mm -hmm. just sitting there, and you know, those are those are being monetized, and you know, that's fine, and. I, you know, I have no ill will there. That's just the model. But in music, you know, you get you get royalties. You get royalties on your back catalog because you own, you know, you own a chunk of your own work. So I think that you know that 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 creators are going to be demanding that across other you know industries as well. And the ones that can yeah. figure out a way to have kind of a more of a collaborative partnership ahead of time, you know, I think are going to save themselves a great loss of talent. Um, you know, and I, I, frankly, I think that um, news outlets right now, magazines and newspapers in particular, uh, are, are, are trying to grab onto the rights more. They're trying, you know, be, because of the rise of things like Hulu and, and Netflix, everybody wants a taste of that next big, you know, docuseries. Um, these, these publications are holding on even tighter to the copyrights. And, you know, that's just not going to fly um, as creators become more and more empowered. Yeah. And I want to get into that uh, more in the second half, uh, I guess. Well, let's let's uh, come into an easy landing on this one. 
Why is it that music is so far ahead of everything else when it comes to things like streaming, things like NFTs, if we're going to, you know, go with that artists owning their own, uh, uh, you know, intellectual property, creatives owning their own work. And then of course the end of retail, why did it happen to music so much faster than anything else? I think there's two main reasons uh, that, that I look at, and, and one of them is, is very concrete and the other one's not. And the first one is just file size. Um, you know, MP3s or whatever music format you use, I mean, the file size is just, it, it's smaller than a, than a visual medium, right? The, the audio files are smaller. Um, if there's video, it's going to be a bigger file, plain and simple. Uh, and so I think that, you know, it, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the technological changes hit music first because the the stuff was more easy to move. You know, you, easy to you can't really download a whole movie with a 56K modem so easily, yeah. especially when, you know, your mom is picking up uh, and, and interrupting your connection. <laughs> uh, you Ma, know, try and steal a movie. So that's one. And the other one is just hard to define, but, you know, th- there's that ineffable coolness of, of musicians, of music, you know, what, what makes a, a rock star or a hip hop actor, you know, uh, like a big pop singer cool, you know, it, it's very hard to define, but, but there's that, um, that charisma that, you know, that sort of uh, je ne sais quoi, uh, that, that comes forth from music. And, um, you know, I think it, it's just so easily, uh, when somebody has that, um, it's just instantaneous, uh, and, and, and people want it. Uh, what's going on in music now that we should be paying attention to that's coming for the rest of us next. Yeah. I mean, certainly crypto, uh, and NFTs, you know, like that has been a big focus and, you know, you're seeing a lot of acts now doing limited edition album NFT drops and maybe not one of one like the Wu-Tang Clan, but, you know, maybe like a few dozen albums or, um, you know, little bits of things. Uh, but I think that one thing that, that people are talking a lot about right now in the music is the idea of the metaverse um, and sort of like owning real estate in, you know, virtual worlds and so forth. And, um, you know, or, or the notion of uh, like virtual performances. And I'm not talking just like live stream performances, but um, you know, Travis Scott, who's one of the biggest hip hop acts in the world right now, did a concert, uh, within Fortnite and, you know, drew some incredible amount of virtual, you know, uh, observers, right? You know, he, he, he didn't have to do anything in terms of being there himself. Mm-hmm. It was just this sort of like giant, you know, like avatar of himself. Um, that arrived in this video game sort of like on a meteor and, you know, in a purple cloud, you know, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but, but, um, just so many people tuned into that. Uh, and he was also able to capitalize off of that in the physical world by tying, um, various merch drops to this performance. So, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know yet quite, um, what the, you know, the, the, uh, that, you know, we're going to see like Tim Cook doing, doing his next conference and, uh, you know, or product launch in, um, Fortnite. I don't, I don't know that that's going to happen, but I think that, 
you know, those kinds of... We'll be spending more and more time in these video games to do non-video game stuff. You know, I, yeah. I have this, um, there's this one DJ I listen to and she's like, all right, I'm going to do a concert. I'm like, oh, great. She's like, it's in Lego, <laughs> yeah. Lego worlds. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. wait, what? Like, you're actually going to show up to, Le but yeah, she did. And, you know, it, uh, it was a big draw. So it is amazing how this is going to, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem like, like there's going to be more movement here, whether it becomes as big as people like Mark Zuckerberg are, are saying. I don't know, but there is, we've talked about on the show a bunch that people spend more time in Fortnite, um, just hanging out mode than battle mode. And yeah. so more and more people will be hanging out in these combined spaces. And in there is actually a great place for musicians to hold concerts, uh, now. And we'll, we'll see if the rest of the rest of us follow. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think in this kind of mid pandemic world, uh, there's definitely more movement that direction, but this stuff was starting, you know, way before COVID, um, even before Travis Scott, the DJ Marshmallow did a, a Fortnite concert that broke all kinds of records. Oh yeah. How many people showed up to that thing? You know, I, I don't want to get my numbers wrong, but, um, Ballpark. I want to say, I want to say it was millions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, that sounds true? Right. Uh, I, I don't, I don't it seems insane. Numbers. I'm not that's testing you on this writing, stuff, so. but yeah. 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 Wild. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about your what you've learned from these artists and put into play in your own career. So why don't we do that at the other side of this break? We'll be back here on the Big Technology Podcast right after this. We're talking with Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back on the Big Technology Podcast with Zach O'Malley Greenberg. He is the author of a new book that's coming out every week on Substack. It's called We Are All Musicians Now. And he decided to release it on Substack because, okay, let, let's get into it. I want to hear the story. So, Zach, I, I was reading, and we've spoken about this in the past, so I won't pretend like we haven't. Um, I was reading your post about how, um, you know, you, and you've even foreshadowed a little bit here. You know, you worked at Forbes for a while. You took a job at a rival publication. And then uh, over time, you decided that you just wanted to kind of, um, own your own work and decided you were going to go it alone. I think there's a great line in your intro post. You said, I've spent my entire career profiling monumental figures like Jay-Z and Diddy, both of whom got to where they were despite a vast array of obstacles far more numerous and insidious than I have ever had to face by maintaining ownership of their creations. I resolved to do the same. I mean, you hit on this in your first answer of our conversation. Um, but it's interesting like uh, that... I guess in some ways it's interesting. It took you so long to do something like this. I haven't seen that uh, with these with these folks. But like, what was the draw of you know releasing your book and writing your work not with a publication and not with a publisher, but entirely via email on Substack? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, what what took me so long? Uh, you know, it's a fair question. Um, 
I had a, a really good gig at Forbes and I was offered what I thought was an even better gig at a rival publication. So I said my goodbyes. Uh, you know, this is over a decade plus I'd been there at Forbes. Um, and, uh, you know, I signed my offer letter to go to the, the rival publication and was given all kinds of, uh, promises about how, how it would be even better and, and so forth and took a few weeks. Do you off. want to name the rival publication or do you want to keep that under wraps? Ah, uh, well, you know, uh, I don't want to cause any fights, but I have to ask you, gosh, um, uh, I mean, I guess it's out there on the, on the, you know, it, it, it's, it starts with the B and ends with the business insider. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, um, Got it out there. yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I took a few weeks off and I kind of, I don't know, wandered the woods and read some historical fiction and, and chilled out. And, uh, and just before I started, I got this like 50 page, uh, you know, what seemed to be boilerplate document, but, you know, buried in there were all kinds of, um, you know, we own all your intellectual property type of stuff. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, surprised to say the least because I thought I had signed whatever I had needed to sign and everything was all, good to go. And so I, I brought in my literary agent and, you know, so surely this is a mistake. And, you know, you know, you know that I do outside books and, and, you know, TV and film type stuff. And, uh, and, um, we tried to negotiate it into something, you know, uh, more palatable. Um, but you know, they barely budged and, um, and, and finally they said, you know, look, this is our final offer, take it or leave it. And I said, um, I said, I'll, I'll leave it. And they said, you know, do you, do you want to take a night and sleep on it? And I said, no. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> it, it felt, it felt good at the time. And, and then I thought, gosh, all right, well, you know, this is interesting. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, by that point I already, I already had the book pitch for, uh, we are all musicians now. And I, I hadn't decided, you know, I was, I was about to start pitching it to, traditional publishers and, and in fact was starting to talk to one who was really interested in it. Um, and, um, but you know, this experience of, of like the, the intellectual property grab, um, which, which I think by the way is it, like I alluded to earlier increasing, right. It's, it's this idea that publications can get a, you know, get a, a, a piece of a, Netflix or, or Hulu show. And, you know, that could be tremendously lucrative. I, I guess to, to jump in, our publishers, like news publishers, now seeing that their reporters are turning into digital personalities, which opens up avenues for books and movies and on documentaries and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's why you think it's increasing because they see that they have actually, and they're helping to build these personalities. Let's be, let's be honest about that, right? Like the publications are helping increase the profile of the individual folks. And so are they, are they seeing that they're, they're helping open these doors and they want a cut of the proceeds? Is that what, what's going on? Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, Instagram is, is helping build, you know, um, the rocks empire, but Instagram is not trying to get a piece of his next movie. You know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the rock, but, uh, and to be it's fair, okay. that's, that's, you can, you you can know, say it here, man. I I've seen you hit a uh, baseball. It goes pretty far. So, you know, the, the, the gun show element <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is not quite there on, on my end, um, <laughs> uh, as it is with uh, <laughs> Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson over there. But, 
No, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, my, my last book is called A-List Angels and, and it, it dealt with how stars started investing in startups, Ashton Kutcher, Nas, Shaq, people like that, J-Lo. Um, but, you know, it also dealt with this phenomenon of, of, you know, I think a lot of social platforms felt they did feel responsible for building, you know, a Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga or, you know, um, uh, somebody like that who kind of came of age at the dawn of Facebook and Twitter. But, you know, on, on the other end, the stars are like, well, we built those platforms, you know, if it weren't for our creativity, nobody would be going there. So I think it depends on yeah. where you come down on it. Do you believe that it's the creators or the, or the platforms that are responsible for, for the, for the prosperity, right? Yeah. The difference is I think that the creators aren't taking salary. And so I do, and I do wonder if it's, I'll just like, um, let me articulate business insiders, you know, perspective here and then, you know, see what, see what, or what I think is their perspective and, you know, see, have you push back on it, but like, yeah. you know, they and other publications would say, you know, we're paying a salary and that, you know, it's like, if, if I pay you to help me build a house and you build a house and people live in it for 200 years, uh, you know, sort of like you, well, you came in and you did your job and just because people are living it in it for 200 years, doesn't mean you lost anything. Um, you know, because of that. So like, I don't know, it is interesting to me, like, and, and of course, this is something that I went through also, where I was at BuzzFeed and they owned all my stories and at age two owned all my stories. Um, and, uh, you know, it felt like a fair trade for me. I was getting paid like a decent, decent salary. And uh, I was, uh, you know, getting a, a chance to come in and do the work and I had coaching and all that stuff. And, um, and yeah. And then, but like for now what I'm doing and what you're doing, like we're taking all the risk here where like, we don't have a guaranteed, you know, uh, uh, income that's going to come in. It's sort of, well, it's subject to the whims of readers or advertisers. And because we're taking all that risk, we are, then we get a chance to own our work. So I guess like I, what I'm curious from you is like hearing that does the publications perspectives make a little bit more sense to you or, um, you know, yeah. Or, or is it just that, um, like, it seems like it's the best of both worlds if you work for a publication and you own your rights and maybe a little bit too much for the worker to ask, but maybe I'm being too sympathetic to the company. So I'm curious what you think. Well, look, no. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't have any ill will, you know, towards, you know, uh, any, any of these places. Um, oh yeah. I'm I just, same. I just I think like, the model yeah. is broken. I mean, but I, I do think that, um, I do think it's unreasonable for them to want to own everything. Uh, and everything. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, I think that, and I think it's also not good business because if, you know, if you're saying like I, the publication am going to own 100% of your intellectual property when it comes to, you know, articles being optioned for TV and film, um, and you will have no creative control either. Um, you know, if one of your stories does go that way, you know, that that's also like disincentivizing the writer from, you know, like, I don't know, uh, going out and shopping it or, you know, or, or kind of like trying to get, get involved. I mean, I, I talked to, to one, yeah. um, editorial a person who'd been in editorial council, uh, at, you know, at a, at a big business publication. And, um, mm -hmm. and the, the quote was like, you know, it's basically like nobody's going to create this stuff if they're not getting paid for, you know, like hundred percent of zero is still zero. Right. Um, of course. And so not only that, who's going to want to work at one of these places if you don't share in any of the upside. 
Yeah. And, and I think the fact is that because journalism, uh, the salaries are traditionally so low, you know, people are like, oh, my God, here's like a nice salary to go do the thing. Sure. You know, this pie in the sky movie thing mm-hmm. or TV series or, you know, book, yeah. whatever, it's never going to happen. But, um, you know, I think that might have been more the case in the past. Right. Especially with uh, with motion picture. Uh, it was very rare that anything was going to get optioned and turn into a film you know, um, or a TV series. Uh, but now that there are so many more different perspective buyers and they're so flush with, with cash, again, Netflix, Hulu, um, you know, it's a much bigger slice of the pie. And, and I think that's why publications are, are kind of hmm. down and, and, you know, and, and grabbing their, their pieces of it, um, a little more strongly. Right. Yeah. I think what we're hitting on here is a, is a large, larger theme also, um, which is that, there's a lot of competition for uh, good, compelling video content. You look at the, like what you mentioned, Netflix, Hulu, the traditional networks, upstarts like Facebook. Uh, so they all want like good video stuff. Um, there's competition for audio now that podcasting is burgeoning, um, and there's competition for good work because uh, you know the we've moved content largely online, and uh, and advertisers want to be next to good stuff. And so there's all these publications and all this demand puts, uh, uh, I guess, a tremendous amount of power in the hands of the people that are making the stuff and are good at it. And I'm curious if you, from, so I'm curious what you think about that, A, and then B, are, are, do you think we're seeing some sort of shift in power between, be, between you know, like going from the big organizations like the record labels or the publishers and to the talent? Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely you know, in an era where things are shifting, but things have been shifting for, for decades. And I think that's, that's part of the, we are all musicians now, uh, thesis, right. It, you know, the musicians also after getting screwed over for so many years, um, realized that they could start to, to take more control of things. And, and I don't think the creators and in other industries have realized quite as much, uh, you know, how important they are, uh, and and I think that, that that's kind of what we're seeing play out in, you know, especially traditionally lower paying worlds like media. Um, that that and so it's you know, it's gonna be by studying musicians that creators can empower themselves and, and kind of, you know, get get what they're what they really do deserve. Zach, how's it going for you uh so far? are you happy with the subscriber numbers that you have on the newsletter? You also mentioned to me before that you do a weekly a 30 minute spot on Sirius, which is super cool. Some other stuff, maybe some TV stuff. Um, so, you know, you're a couple months into this big jump. Uh, it all happened within the past few months. Do you feel happy to have made the transition or are you thinking, Oh God, uh, let me just get to another publication and sign away my stuff and, you know, <laughs> be done with it. I, I, do, I don't want to go sign away all my stuff. No, I, I'm really happy with it. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, there's so much freedom. Um, and, you know, and I should say, I mean, there is, there is also support from Substack. I mean, you know, they, they did give me a grant to come over and you know, yeah. what happened basically was after I, yeah, I mean, I think I, I got to this point of the story, um, you know, a few minutes ago, but you know, he, here I was and I had, I had just said my goodbyes at Forbes and I, and now I had walked away from, from this, you know, uh, great offer. Um, you know, and, and other offer. And, and so, and so I, you know, I ended up, I was kind of faced with a choice. Like, do I try to go back and go to another traditional publication or, or do I, or do I do this thing? Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I ended up cold calling the founder of, of Substack basically and, and just telling him the story of, of what I, of what I just told you. Um, and, you know, and saying, Hey, you know, I, I have this book, I want to write this book, but you know, I would, I would love to pursue putting it out on Substack because I think, I think that especially when you're talking about things like, you know, NFTs, crypto, metaverse, whatever you're, you know, this stuff is changing not even week by week by week, it's day by day. Um, and so the idea of putting it out with a traditional publisher where, you know, the, the most recent thing, um, that, you know, that will be in a book is something that happened nine months ago. Uh, you know, I mean, I just couldn't really envision doing that anyway. And so, you know, Substack being a startup was able to, to move quickly and nimbly and, um, you know, basically give me a grant to, to kind of, you know, compete with, what I could have gotten mm. at, a, at a major publication or for a book advance. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of take on some of my risk, but, you know, I, I guess to kind of get back to your question of like, um, why didn't I do this before? Uh, frankly, it was a lot of risk, you know? Um, and I didn't want to give up. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, let's say I didn't want to take on all the risk myself. And, you know, I was fortunate that that Substack was, able to shoulder a little bit of it, you know, in order to get me off the ground. So, um, you know, I think that was all I needed to really, to kind of, you know, take the, maybe a, it's not like I was pushed off the diving board, but I, you know, I had a little nudge. <laughs> and so, and I was like, yeah. all right, I'm just going to jump in, you know. Are you going to keep doing this? Uh, let's say, you know, is it a one year thing for you or are you going to keep doing it for the next five, 10? Oh, you know, I mean, Five to, we'll see. I'd love to keep doing it for the next five or ten. I'd love for this to be like yeah. my last job ever, you know, um, and just keep growing it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, I will say that I'm astonished. I thought like maybe, I didn't even think this would be a thing. And I'm, you know, well into year two of this project right now and it continues to go and it's awesome. It's, uh, it's fun to do. So, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think the trick, as you alluded to, is, basically audience development, business development. And how do you, how do you get people to, yeah. to find this stuff? Yeah. And, you know, I right. know that there's an appetite um, for what I write, you know, and the, the subscriber numbers are coming along, but, you know, I know that there's orders of magnitude more people out there who want to read my stuff because they did when I was Forbes and they, you know, they have, you know, for my books and I know the numbers there. And even if I could yeah. get to, to a fraction of those numbers um, within this first year, you know, it'll, it'll be awesome. Um, but just, yeah. you know, the ability to, I don't know, to, to have like a more personal relationship with your audience. I guess people could always email you or find you on social media when you were at a publication. But, you know, um, right. even just in the, the sort of like the tone of the, of the stories, right? Like you don't have to write in the voice of a publication. Yeah. You had a great email just asking readers, hey, what should I write about? What are you interested in? Yeah, exactly. And I, I have that that goes out to everyone as soon as they sign up. Tell me what you're interested in. Tell me who you are. And people do respond and it's great to hear them back, hear back from them. So, Because it's like the, the, you know, the reader is sort of your boss, right? If, if the reader exactly. isn't satisfied, if, if you're not um, putting out really compelling stuff that, you know, that is making the reader want to subscribe or want to tell their friends, then, you know, you're not doing your job and the model doesn't work. So. Um, yeah, you know, just, just the ability to do that and then to not have to worry about taking on some publications voice or preferences or proclivities. Um, that it's, it's just great. It's just really great. It rules. 
Okay, I'm going to shout out the URL. Zogblog.substack.com. Z-O-G-B-L-O-G.substack.com. Let's take one more quick break. And then when we get back, Zach, if you're up for it, I would like to do a very quick lightning round, talking, throwing out some uh, musicians, some artists that you've uh, come into contact with. And maybe you can share one business lesson or one interesting fact about them that, uh, sure. that we might not know readily. Okay, so let's do that when we get back. Here on the Big Technology Podcast, stick around. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back here for one final segment with Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. He's the author of We Are All Musicians. You can find it on Substack uh, and also uh, longtime Forbes editor music that, that uh, covered music. Zach, you've had so many cool experiences with different musicians. So let's go uh, through a quick tour down memory lane and maybe you can share like one business lesson or one just life lesson that you learned from each one of them. Uh, we'll start with the big man himself, Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. What did I learn from Justin Bieber? Um, you know, I think that story, I did a cover story on him in uh, about a decade ago. And he was one of the first big names I interviewed who was investing in startups. Uh, and at the time he had just put some money into a, uh, a little uh, Scandinavian company called Spotify. Hmm. <laughs> he was one of the and early Spotify investors. Interesting. He was an early Spotify yeah. investor. And, you know, I, I think that was kind of part of Spotify's charm offensive to whenever the music industry was to make some equity available. Um, as they were launching in the U S because, you know, it wasn't guaranteed that they were going to, that they were going to make it. So, um, but you know, I, I really attribute that to Scooter Braun. So, uh, that's his manager. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, I guess there, there are two lessons there, which is, you know, one, um, have, have a good manager or, or lawyer. Uh, but the other one is, is, you know, to find a way to own a piece of, you know, not only to own your own work, but to own the platform, upon which is it is uh, uh created and of course that's not always possible for everybody not everybody's just in bieber and they kind of just demand a piece of it like but you know if you drive uber you can go out and buy some uber stock i don't know i mean it, it might um it, it might give you more of a feeling of, of ownership and uh you know i guess on, on the converse i i always buy uh, stock of companies that um that i feel are, are overcharging me um uh, like uh, like my health really? insurance company, uh, yeah. <laughs> because oh, I figure man. if they're if they're I'm kind of hedging yeah. my bets, you know, it's like um, basically if if they're going to be overcharging me, um, at least I'll be getting a piece of their some of the upside. Increase, yeah. yeah. Okay. Moving on. DJ Khaled. Let's go quickly through these. Oh, quickly. Okay. Um, so DJ Khaled. Uh, so sort of like a piece of advice from DJ Khaled. Um, Man, you know, um, I think the big thing from him is, you know, he, he didn't get huge, uh, you know, like hugely famous until he was in his forties. He was a late bloomer. Um, and he just kept hustling. And I, I think, I think that's the, that's the lesson. Just, just keep hustling. 
Okay. Katy Perry? Um, I think the lesson from Katy Perry is just keep learning. Uh, Katy Perry never had a sort of traditional education. Um, I think she got her GED, but never went to high school or college. Uh, did a cover story for her or on, on her for Forbes. Uh, I want to say it was 2014 or 2015. And we ended up doing the, the big cover interview in Rome. And, um, and she, she, her people told me that to meet her at the, at the Coliseum. And there was this whole sort of spy novel thing where I had to get in a decoy car. And it was like, she was wearing this big hat anyway, but um, that's what she does at all the coffees <laughs> and in, in, in yeah. tours, you know, she, she goes and soaks up whatever the local history is to fill in the gaps in her, in her own knowledge. Um, cool. So, you know, yeah, ne- never, never stop learning. Nas. Oh man. Nas to me is all about the pivot. Um, Nas <laughs> was somebody who came up, you know, he was always the guy who was only all about the music and, and his peers, Jay-Z and uh, Puff Daddy and Dr. Dre were, were getting into these, you know, business ventures. Um, and then later in his career, Nas pivoted, he, again, great manager, guy by the name of Anthony Sala, got him into investing in startups. And so he got into, I think Casper, uh, was a big one. Um, you know, that, that was probably the biggest one, but I think he's in on Lyft. He was in on a bunch of different startups early. Uh, so I'd say it's never too late to, to make a pivot. And now, you know, he's probably the most successful venture capitalist, uh, in, in hip hop. Yeah. What about Shaq? Shaq. Um, I'm fascinated by Shaq. I think that dude is, he's such a unique individual. Shaq's, I think the lesson from Shaq is, you know, never get too comfortable. Um, and, and, Interesting. and I'll just share an anecdote from when I interviewed him from my last book, A-List Angels, he's, and he's a big startup investor. So, you know, we're in there, we're in this like hotel room and he's in a tank top and it's the middle of summer. You know, Shaq is <laughs> uh, enormous. And, How big is he in person? Uh, in, I think he's listed at seven feet. 300 pounds and in person it's like he's nine feet tall and but no i want to talk tell tell me about like the yeah the visceral experience of spending time with Shaq. he he uh you know like like his shoes are like his <laughs> um i mean his biceps are bigger than my thighs you know i mean like his yeah. shoes are like you could fit my shoes in his shoes uh and so you know here we are talking and and, he, and i said i was really like dude you know you you're why are you, why are you even, you, you know, you've made hundreds of millions of dollars in your career. Why are you even bothering getting into the startup stuff? And he, and he looked at me, you know, big old imposing shack. And he says, fear, fear, he says, fear. He said, and he basically he's afraid of stagnation and he's afraid of going broke mm. because, you know, the statistics on athletes going broke are off the charts. And so he's just constantly um, trying to create new business opportunities for himself without spending too extravagantly on it uh, yeah but you know n- never being complacent lady gaga lady gaga i've never interviewed um but uh-huh. i did uh uh have a glass of whiskey next to her at a bar one time at a grammy after party. Oh. Um, so i don't have any personal lessons to impart from her um okay but um you know i mean i think that i think that she's done a great job of uh, you know, uh, never being afraid, you know, um, 
to, to be yourself. Oh, that, and, that is for sure. <laughs> and, and it, you know, yeah. and it, it's, it's not like being yourself, you know, you, you lose out on some commercial aspect. I mean, you know, um, authenticity is, is super valuable and, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, monetizable. Yeah. Um, all right, let's wrap it up with two more. Diddy. Diddy, man. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the phrase that comes to mind about Diddy is can't stop, won't stop. Yeah. And, um, I've interviewed him a few times over the years and, and, you know, one of the things that, that really stuck in my mind about him, you know, and everybody knows Diddy, the charisma and the lifestyle and all that, but, um, yeah, can't stop, won't stop, but especially when it comes to customer service and the dude, mm-hmm. the dude will go into Soho house and tell the bartender to put the Ciroc vodka, which is, you know, his, it's not even technically vodka, but yeah. whatever it's his, it's his drink. Uh, to, to put it on the top shelf, you know, like you, you will get that granular <laughs> yeah. with it. Uh, and what are you going to do with the bartender if, if Diddy is telling you to put, you know, his. You're putting his, it on that top shelf. shelf. You're going to put it on the top yeah. shelf. Yeah. We've talked a lot of hip hop. Um, you've done some uh, country tag alongs too. Is there a favorite one that sticks out in your memory? Yeah. I think uh, the, the greatest country adventure was uh, a cover I wrote about Toby Keith. About yeah, a decade ago, I remember this and, one. Um, yeah, he was launching a mezcal line, and and uh, you know he he basically he poured me the, like a lot of old mezcal. Like, there would be a worm at the bottom, so he poured yes. me a red solo cup of it, and basically dared me to drink the worm, um, mm-hmm. which I did. And then I feel like it, it kind of opened. You up drank, the the drank the worm. Drank the worm. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> okay, and then you wrote a book about Jay Z, and he didn't participate in the book, but then you met up with Jay-Z. How, how did that go? I don't know, Zach, were you planning to, or whatever. I'm just going to ask it. If you don't want to tell the story on, on air. No, I'm happy you know, to tell it. You can. Yeah. So it, what, but this seems like it, a fun one to. So Jay would yeah. not participate, but then you and but him then, come face to face. Let's hear the story. Yeah. Um, so my first book was about Jay-Z. It's called Empire State of Mind. Just released the billionaire edition um, uh, over the summer, and uh, so that's out now. But you know, he over the years, I mean, as I was first writing it, he, his people, you know, I reached out to them, tried to get him to, you know, talk for an interview, and um, there was like, oh, maybe, 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 and then they, they said, well, maybe you should rip up your book deal, and um, and you know, we'll maybe he'll he'll let you write his business book, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'll do that. Um, so he never said no, but he never said yes. So, you know, the book came out and I didn't talk to him. And, um, and then I was at, uh, his music festival, the Made in America music festival in Philly, a couple of years after the book came out and, and, uh, I was waiting for the, right. I I guess I had, I was getting out of a porta potty and I walk basically right into Jay-Z and Beyonce. (laughs) Oh my um, God. How did say, what, so, they were waiting for the porta potty. What was going on there? Well, I'm not sure, but the porta potties were the same for the VIP section as they were for the media tent, which is you know unusual because usually oh, that doesn't the, happen the so often. Reporters are yeah. you know uh, uh, <laughs> kind of squirreled away um, in somewhere yeah. undesirable, but you know there right. was maybe limited space. So um, you know, I, I just sort of said I I, I didn't I just kind of improvised. I was like, hey Jay. I'm the guy who wrote the book about you. 
and, yeah. and he, he <laughs> pretended not to hear me and he kind of yeah. sauntered off and, and then he, and then he, uh, he looked back over his shoulder and he said, that book was horrible. <laughs> and, 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 uh, said that. <laughs> and disappeared around the corner. And, uh, um, yeah. and I immediately ran back to the media tent and I, I, uh, churned out a post, uh, which I titled Jay-Z's review of the book I wrote about him. Yeah. And I, and I essentially retold that, that, um, that yeah, the tale. story. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, that's my Jay Z story. And that was that was it. Do you think he actually didn't like it, or was he just playing with you? Uh, I think he was just playing with me. You know, I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't write it to to please or of course, him, of course, but, it wasn't but, for um, him. But I'm actually curious, like, what the reaction was trying to convey. Yeah, I I told this story one time. I was uh, I was doing a panel with Diddy uh, at South by and um, <laughs> in the green room. I was like, I don't know, what do I talk to Diddy about? And so I, I told him that story and he laughed and he said, he said, he's playing with you. He's a good cat. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The book is, we are all musicians. Now you can find it on uh, Substack at zogblog.substack.com. The author is Zach O'Malley Greenberg. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much, Alex. Really appreciate it. Very interesting premise, and um, you are cranking. And I've been enjoying reading the posts, and I encourage everybody to go sign up. Thank you to Nate Guatney for editing and mastering uh, the audio, especially as I get my new space set up here in Brooklyn. Uh, hopefully, Nate, it will be a little less work next time. Thanks to Red Circle for selling the ads uh, and hosting the podcast, and congrats on your new round of fundraising. Hopefully, was, this party keeps going for a long while after this. And thanks most of all to you, the listeners. We'll be back next Wednesday with another show. Here on the Big Technology Podcast with the tech insider or outside agitator, we hope to see you then. Until then, take care.